So we'll open back up to the 23rd book, 23rd chapter, the book of Matthew. As you know, last week when we started this, we talked about the pronouncement of woe or destruction on the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests and elders, the religious kind of elites and heads of Israel. Um, It has gotten to this point where Jesus in his last few days on earth, um, as we said last time, is, is making a clear, concise statement about, as you would view it at that time, the nature of the church or the nature of the religious establishment of what is known, the leaders of that establishment, and where they are differing and in error in comparison to what Christ and God had actually instituted. Okay, So this whole chapter is not just a condemnation of one group or one philosophy. It is actually, as we have seen over the last couple of chapters, it is a entire dissertation on what is wrong with the Jewish religion at this point. Okay? It is because of the teachings of these people, because of their actions that they have caused the problems that are now prevalent in this Jewish culture and religion. If you look forward, as we go into Acts and other epistles, we will find where Paul and others will write back about these Jewish leaders. And he will write back about what they had done. And he would talk about how the name of the Lord is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of their actions. The actions of the religious cause actually the name of the Lord not to be glorified, but actually to be blasphemed. Well, of all the people... Of all the people to promote blasphemy in the world, I would hope it would not be the ones who profess to be followers of the one that's being blasphemed. So that's where you're getting at with this. That's why he addresses this so specifically, and that's why we have been going through this for two years now. Our hope and our intention is to hopefully indict ourselves where we have strayed from what Christ has taught us to be and do, okay? And the point of that being to prevent the blaspheming of the name of our Lord because of our actions, okay? There's not a lot that we can do with fixing the problems with the world. We can't correct people's actions. We can't prevent people's errors, okay? But we can do a lot about ourselves, We can do a lot with our issues. We can do a lot with our problems. And where we are not living up to what God and Christ has taught us out of his word, then we have to take corrective steps for ourselves. And it's not just so that we can then be more theologically astute astute or correct, but rather so that our actions because of that are not causing the Gentiles, so to speak, or unbelievers in that way to actually blaspheme the name of God. Remember, when we started this, our actions were to cause unbelievers to actually glorify the name of the Lord. Our good works that we did were to cause others to see it and create glorification of God. 
the corruption of that is where our actions as believers calls actually the blaspheming of God. So that's why he's going through this in chapter 23 to really pinpoint, lay out, and deconstruct the situation that has been prevalent here, okay, that the Jews are living in, okay? So as we talked about last time, we've got to be, I've got I to move on or else we're going to get stopped again. So here when you see this section, we talked about there's six, and you can look at it. There's, some will say seven. I have, you know, locked it in as six woes or condemnations that are, are pronounced in this situation. The first one, the one we looked at and the one that we did not get out of last time was what we were calling fame versus faith. Okay, and this is where we looked at Jesus's pronouncement of woe against the Pharisees because they desired the fame of religious activities over true faithful obedience to Jehovah. Okay, So their desire was not out of a faith-to-faith, love, compassion, you know, faith-driven action that was given by Christ and was to return to the glory of Christ. Their actions were strictly for the point of, number one, they just liked being called nice titles. They liked having people recognize how perceivably holy they were. They liked all the praise. They liked all the honor. They liked all the glory. And they didn't want to share it with anybody, in particular Jesus or God, okay? So it was the fame that they desired, not faith, okay? So as we kind of deconstructed that last time, we talked about how there were actions that they held to be sacred and holy, things like circumcision, that were, you know, the thing that was important above all else, okay? There was other things that we go into later, that how they tithed, what they pulled out of the law, what they kept perfectly, all these things... And you go, okay, well, these were really, really religious people. Yes, they were extremely religious people. These were not a religious. These were not atheists, nor were these a religious. They were super religious. In fact, they were hyper religious. Another way of looking at that would be describing it as religiosity. They were they were full of it. Okay. So these were not people that were devoid of some kind of religious affiliation. No, these were actually the leaders of the religion, okay? But what we wanted to deconstruct last time and bring out was that all of those religious actions in the absence of faith means nothing, okay? And the absence of a faithful obedience to Christ and God, it's nothing. It's just religious actions. It's just practices. It's just ceremonies. When we looked at this going into the new church, we talked about how with the new church, there were still these guys hanging out. So the religious practices weren't bad. These guys were still doing them in the context of the church, in the context of being believers And that was acceptable, okay? So we talked about that. We talked about the diversity that was in the new church. We talked about the diversity of practices and appearances in the new church. And what we were doing with that, why we were trying to bridge that gap, is because there is a pitfall that these Pharisees are getting called out for that the church can fall into as well, and I'd say probably a lot of times has fallen into, okay? And that pitfall is this. When you look at these Pharisees, to make up for the fact that they did not have 
faith in these things. They did not have a heart for keeping God's law as God would have them keep it. Okay, and we talked about this from Romans. Instead, what they did was is they heaped on themselves religious ceremony to substitute for that. Okay, so to, to substitute for the lack of faith, they heap on religious ceremony. Okay, makes you feel good about yourself. You go do your religious ceremony, you pay your tithes. In fact, you pay in, in like an extremely overwhelming way, okay? I mean, you're tithing like mint and cumin and all sorts of crazy stuff. You are hyper-religious. It's a compensation factor, okay? And their motives were bad with it. They did it for self-righteous glory in most of the cases. They heaped on these, themselves these religious ceremonies for what purpose? To give glory to God? No. In fact, in most cases, it was glory for themselves. Again, a cycling back to themselves to bring glory on themselves to make themselves feel real good. Okay? And like I said, even in Acts, when we looked at the early church, you had the predisposition because of who makes up the early church that the religious ceremony can take the forefront again. Well, they have to be circumcised. Those Gentiles have to be circumcised. You have to be circumcised. That's a religious ceremony that has to be performed. Okay. And in many cases, like we saw with the Jews here, like we saw as we've gone through Deuteronomy and Leviticus, just because you're circumcised doesn't mean you're obedient. Okay. You can have the religious ceremony. You can look obedient from the outside. But as far as what is going on within the heart, within the faith-to-faith connection between you and God, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. There's two ways this can go. And you use circumcision because it's the one that's the most obvious in this case with the context, with the culture and everything. You can be circumcised and have no faith. Or you can be circumcised because you have faith. That's the two options here. You can be circumcised out of religious ceremony. In fact, every single one of the Jews circumcised their kids at the eighth day. It wasn't because of that child's faithfulness, right? That child didn't jump up and say, You know what? I believe and profess that I will follow Jehovah to the day I die. Circumcise me. No. Right? Okay, so that was ceremonial. Now, what you would hope for is that the people that were circumcised and were living up and growing up in this environment would ultimately follow Jehovah and continue to do what they were commanded to do. But that ceremony did not establish faith. As we can see, there was plenty of Jews who had been faithful to be circumcised, but ultimately were not that faithful. Okay. So here you see the same thing. The church can have the predisposition in some ways because it's a religion, because it's a religious institution, so to speak, if you're going to view it in kind of a secular view. okay, The church in and of itself can fall into the trap of replacing faith and true faithful obedience with the religious ceremony. okay, And you can have people who go to church every week, who participate every week, who do all of these religious ceremonial things, but just for the sake that it's a ceremony. 
just for the sake it makes them feel good about themselves. In some ways, there's probably still, I don't doubt today, if it happened with the Pharisees, I do not dispute or doubt today that there aren't people who do it for their own self-righteous aggrandizement. They'll go, look how good, look at me. Look at what I do at church. Look at how I participate. Look at how I tithe. Look at how I do. I'm a really good person and I love it when you tell me that. I'm not thinking that the Pharisees are the only one in history that have ever been guilty of this. Okay? But what we have to realize and what has always been the case, okay, the religious ceremony does not save us. It does not change our lives even, okay? The religious ceremony, religious actions will not save you. Going to the right church will not save you. Reading from the right Bible will not save you. The only thing that saves and changes our lives is the work of Jesus Christ, okay? Now, going forward from that, even from there... It's not the religious ceremony that changes our life, okay? So even after we, Christ has changed our heart and done things to us, if we still go back and rely on the religious ceremony, guess what? It still won't change your life, okay? What changes our lives and what throughout the Bible you see changes your life is the, the, the work of Christ within us that then drives us to do the things that are ultimately by faith, okay, that change our lives. When Christ has done work within us, and then because of what Christ has done within us, and for, the re, for Christ who has done this stuff within us, we then do actions that at one point in time were considered a religious ceremony, it takes on a whole different point of view. You're not baptized as just a religious ceremony. Your baptism is a showing of your obedience. You don't do it just because you reached a certain age and that's just when you're supposed to in the church. You do it because you recognize Christ's works and you say, I'm obedient to him. I am giving my life to Christ. So there's a difference there. The faith in Christ and faithfulness to Christ's commandments is what changes our lives, okay? It's not just the ceremony. It's not just the stuff. So we can't just increase then, the contrary to that is, you can't just increase in religious works and expect your life to change. Does that make sense? Even someone who's been born again. Now, I know we've been talking about Pharisees and some groups here that we're looking at going, they don't have that heart in them. This is all self-righteous aggrandizement is all they're doing this for. But let's say for someone who Christ has changed their heart, they have put that faith in there, they have moved their, their that, that will and, the, and to do is in there, okay? Just increasing in religious works still won't change your life. What changes your life is the faith to faith relationship with Christ. Do we see the difference in that? Can we see that there is a difference in doing religious works and having a relationship with Christ? Can we see that doing religious works because of my relationship with Christ is a completely different operating system? 
what I do over here, the good works I do, those things, if I'm doing them just as a religious exercise, it doesn't have the same weight on my life as it does if it's stemming from a relationship. And I use that in a purposeful way. We can all say, oh, well, I was baptized. Well, I believe. Well, I, you know, gave my life for Christ. I did those things. Those are sentimental moments I can track through in my life. Okay? But is the relationship there? Is the conversation there? Is the day-to-day interaction there? You know, relationships in our natural lives take on a form, don't they? There's stuff we do. That may not even be something significant. It may just be picking up the phone and chatting for 30 minutes. But the relationships in our lives are described as relationships when they are vibrant and healthy and discussion is happening, interaction is happening. I have cousins all over the place. You know what? We don't have a relationship. I don't talk to them. If I go back to corners, there's all sorts of people I can tie you back to and say, yeah, you're my cousin. There is a natural relationship there. You know what? I've never spoken to them. And in fact, sometimes when they tell me, oh, you know so-and-so, I'm like, no, I don't. I've never met that person in my life. Okay? Yeah, there's I'm a relation of theirs, but there ain't no relationship. Okay? So it's the same thing. You can say, oh, yeah, Jesus, y'all, I'm, I'm, I believed in him when I was 10 years old. Okay, great. Where is the relationship going? Because he's a person that we have a relationship with, or at least should. Okay? So that's where this takes on a different meaning. Otherwise, your religious works look just about the same as the Pharisees do. They had a lot of religious works too. Don't let the religious works fool you into thinking there's relationship. Okay? Relationship comes first. What Christ does in us and through us comes first. And it's not some kind of hands-off action by Christ where he's like, you know, breathing on the population but not really touching them. No, it's a relationship. He comes and it's in the heart and there is a closeness and a, and a tightness there, okay? So it's not something that's hands-off. So he's most certainly intimately involved in the relationship, so then out from that can flow religious actions that have a whole new meaning. Okay? Then your good works that you want to do in reciprocation for everything Christ has done for us breeds praise, honor, and glory to the Father. Because otherwise, if you're not in that relationship, then our lives and our religious actions are going to look different. We can do all these quote-unquote good works. We can make people think we're really righteous and really good and how, oh, we really believe and all this stuff. But really, our lives don't, don't connect with that. And that's much like what the Pharisees were getting in trouble for. He's like, look, you can listen to their teaching all day because what they teach is good. Just don't do what they do because their actions don't match up with it. So it's important for us to not just fixate on the religious practices, okay? We're going for a relationship. We're going for something deeper than just a list of things that you do because you're a Christian, okay? 
there's things that we do, there's things that we believe in as Christians that stem from a faith-to-faith connection with Christ. That's why they come there. Why do you think he would tell us to be good to people that are outside of yourselves? You think he just did, he just wrote this up, kind of like Buddha said it would be good not to do certain things, that that's what Jesus has just come up with some teachings that would just be great for mankind if we all lived by them. No, everything that he taught us was because he viewed us as brothers and sisters and there is a relationship there to foster those kind of things. So then going forward, as he continues to waylay on the Pharisees, he goes into verse 13 and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither do you suffer them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and make for pretense long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive the greater damnation. That's really where my 7 verses 6 got split off. I thought those two went together very well. Okay, Those two woes that he pronounces there, the woes on the, um, on the disciples and the woes against their actions towards the widows. Okay. And I'll hopefully explain why I think those go together. All right. So this section we just, we kind of described as being destruction versus discipleship. Okay. Destruction versus discipleship. In the first section of this, you have a contrast again between what the Pharisees practiced and what Christ had called us to do. Okay, and here he's using this thing about the kingdom of heaven, right? Now, again, there's a lot of depth that you could get into this, and I'm sure there's a lot of levels on which you could divide this, all right? But when you look at what Christ is calling them out for, right, what you have here is a contrast to what Christ ultimately commanded his disciples to do in a couple of chapters. Okay? And what I'm talking about is you look at why Christ established what he did with his church. You look at what the Jews even were called to do. Okay? And you look at how Christ in all of these chapters that we've been covering going all the way back to Matthew chapter 5 has given the point of saying, you have heard it say this, but this is what I am commanding. Here he says, you have heard them teach this, but this is what I don't want you to do, which is basically everything they're doing, all right? What they're teaching, what they're doing doesn't match up. What they're saying sometimes doesn't match up with what I had told you to do originally, okay? So that's the paradox that you get here going back and forth. What he's describing here is he's saying, you have people, disciples, that you should be making, and you should be bringing them up in what God has taught you, okay? Instead, what you're doing is you are actually, by your actions, and in some cases, by your teachings and your practices, you are laying stumbling blocks and obstructions in front of people, okay? You're taking people who should be nurtured into disciples of Jehovah and basically putting a block in front of them. Because of your actions and what you're teaching, you are actually turning them away from the disciple of Jehovah path that they were on. Okay? You're also, and you know, as he's kind of said, he's like, number one, you're not entering in. And even those who would have been entering in, you're blocking and keeping from doing that. You say, well, how is that? 
How are they preventing that? How are they stopping that? What are they doing? Well, again, as we have looked at this over and over again, their teachings from the law say one thing. Their actions say another. This is something that we have been incredibly hard on over the last several years. Okay? You don't know the impact of your actions. You don't know the impact of your actions. So, as these people are over here teaching all this stuff, teaching these things about Jehovah, you know, even hearkening from the language that John the Baptist used... Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight straight his path. You know, repent and be baptized. All these things that would be good, solid teachings. Okay? But you yourself are not even doing them. You're teaching all this, but you yourself are not even doing them. You're saying all this stuff. You're telling me all these things, but you yourself are not even doing them. You're getting up and you're talking about how the Word of God is the only authority in your life, yet your life is not doing what the Word of God commanded you to do. You're getting up and preaching about some subject. And man, you're preaching it from the authority of the Word of God and the Word of God is true. But your actions then are not matching up with what you're teaching. And because of that, the people who are watching you and listening to you are going to look at you preach this, watch you do this, and they go, obviously, this is what that really meant. So where the Word of God said this, and it seems pretty doggone clear, but then look at what they do. Look at their actions. So maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe I took that in a wrong context. Maybe what that really means is... That when you say honor your father and mother, you can get around that by giving a donation to the temple. Okay, well now I understand that better. See, I had this crazy idea that honoring my father and mother meant I was supposed to give that to my father and mother. But apparently, because they taught this and then did this, it must have another nuanced context. This is where... In the last, I guess, two years as we've been going through this, I have really tried to drill this home, okay? You have to rely on what the Word of God says, no matter what, okay? Your life as a disciple of Christ has to be hinged on only one thing, and that is what the Word of God says, okay? That's it. That's the, that's the level. That's where it all comes from. No matter if it's a preacher or a prophet or an apostle, it has to go back to the Word of God. And that's what even, I mean, Paul would even say that. Check me, please. Cross-reference me. Please do that. Because if my life ever gets off course, I don't want you looking at my life and saying, well, that's what the Word of God must mean. Because now not only is my path derailed, as far as if we're looking at this from the point of view Christ has given it, if my path is derailed in the kingdom of heaven, then my actions may 
draw you off the rails as well. So you don't go back to, well, this brother, this sister, they are so founded. They are so, I mean, they just, they've read that Bible cover to cover. They've got a million verses memorized. They know how to argue things the right way as far as doctrine and theology. They are just solid. But, you know, I kind of am a little bit perplexed because they say this, but their life doesn't necessarily match it. And so how do I make that coalesce together? Now, one of the biggest glaring observations I have about this, this is going to be the one that I've said before and matches the most in our context. You can preach grace to me all day. When you are ungracious to your fellow Christians, when you are ungracious to people around the world, when you're ungracious to your neighbors, when you're ungracious to your enemies, I don't believe what you're saying. I don't care who you are. You can have all the names of all the greatest preachers and your lineage go all the way back to John the Baptist himself. You can stand up here and preach about grace all day. If your life does not represent it, two things are true. Grace means something completely different. Or you are not living by what you're preaching. If your life is no more gracious than it was... Before you were ever born again. Then there's something either wrong with your doctrine. Or there's something wrong with your actions. Now the problem is. When you get up here. And preach grace. And talk about how it is the only way. And about how Christ did it all. And all these things. And about all these good truths about grace. Yet your life is something opposite of gracious. Then guess what? Everyone you've preached to. Has been derailed. Because now what you're teaching them is that, no, actually, hostility amongst Christian groups, well, that's just okay because, I mean, we're right. We know what's right. We have the right doctrine. We have the right theology. We have the right understanding. So me being hostile towards somebody else that's a professing Christian, that's okay because, I mean, we're right. They're wrong. But, man, I believe in grace all right. Don't you? Don't you like grace? You know that whole grace thing where we were enemies and God loved us and God still died for us when we were enemies and spitting in his face? Man, I love grace. Except when I actually have to be gracious to somebody. Grace is all great before the world began. It's not any application to my life. Except being able to say, I know better than you do about how we're saved. If the doctrines of grace do not change your life, I either don't believe you believe them or you're just willfully not wanting to follow them. And you're no better than the Pharisees. In fact, you are categorically a Pharisee. Because you are not only not entering into the kingdom of heaven, you are derailing those who would. You are by your example drawing off those who would follow the things that Christ had laid out in his word and to live a life that is contrary to what Christ lived in his life. And therefore, you're drawing them away from it. So what is the contrast to that? Christ is calling them out saying, this is what you're doing. 
And in about, well, man, and I was about to do some quick math. It wasn't going to work for me. It's going to go, what's 5 plus 3 is 28, okay? So chapter 28, we're going to see the contrast to this. What does Christ then tell his disciples to do? In chapter 28, what we all know as the Great Commission, and as we all know, was not finished by the apostles. In chapter 28, he says this, Go, therefore, and teach all nations. If you've ever wondered whether that means all nations, congratulations, you're sitting in a nation that was part of those all nations. Okay? If this stopped with the apostles, there's no church in America. Okay? We were not the originals. I know there's a lot of people who disbelieve that. But the church migrated here, okay? It did not originate here. Jesus was not white either. That's just another bombshell. Go therefore to all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, okay? And what else? Teaching them to observe all the traditions that you develop, teaching them to deserve, to, to observe all the practices that will develop, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. The basis for our functioning as a church goes back to teaching and observing the things that Christ taught us. Okay? And he's telling his disciples to go and make other disciples based on what I commanded you to do. Okay? And what are you going to teach them in their discipleship training? The things I commanded you to do. And what did I command you to do? I commanded you to love me with all of your heart, soul, and might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I told you to keep my commandments if you love me. And we won't go through that again, but what are my commandments? That you love me with all your... Okay, so we went through that circle last time and, you know, it kind of got on the hamster wheel, but I hope everybody got the point. This is what Christ commanded us to do. Us as believers, us as followers of his teachings. He told us, now go and teach others the same thing. Go and make disciples. That's what that phrase means. Go to all nations and teach all nations means make disciples. Okay? And what are you making them disciples of? Alabama or Auburn football? No. Hopefully you're not making them disciples of your life. Because sometimes our lives don't match up with it. That's why Christ didn't say, I want you to go forth and make disciples that are just like you. Because if I'm the measuring stick, we are in a whole lot of trouble. Instead, he said, I want you to make them disciples of my teachings, my things, the things that I did. And where you saw me love my neighbor and be gracious unto my neighbor, then guess what? That's one of the check marks for you. Those are the things you teach. You don't go forward and make disciples of an institution, of religious ceremony, or anything like that. What you are making disciples of is Jesus Christ and you hold him up and you say these are his teachings and this is what we follow this is what a disciple looks like this is what we have to do do I always do that right no 
But this is what he's told us to do. And this is what a disciple looks like. So that's the opposite of what you have here with the Pharisees. And that's why he's telling everybody that's listening, don't do like they're doing. They are headed off a cliff. And they're dragging you with them. Instead, come back to what I'm telling you to do. Listen to what I'm commanding you to do. Let me give you the real explanation of what the law is teaching. Let me really show to you what it means. Because one way is leading to the kingdom of heaven. The other way is leading way off track. Now then he ties in and he goes, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you make for a pretense long prayers, but you devour widows' houses. Now again, you you say, how do I tie this back in with what he's been telling them here? Okay, now this all kind of builds off of everything. Okay, so the difference between faith and fame. Okay, we're still seeing this play out. You're just seeing it play out in a little bit different way. Okay, and in this he is kind of exhibiting the issues the Pharisees had. You're making disciples of yourselves, not disciples of Jehovah. And in that, you're leading them away from the kingdom of heaven because you're not, by your life, you're not going in either, okay? So if they're following what you're doing, then they're going off as well. Well, what was the next commandment that he, or the next woe that he pronounces? This is an example of that. See how you make all these long prayers as a pretense. Now, it may be that you do that because you want people to see you and go, oh, look at, man, look at how that guy can pray. If that guy can pray that long, man, he must be a truly holy person. Now again, Christ has already addressed the prayer issue way back in chapter 5 when he said, your prayers, okay, are not to be just rituals. That's why you don't give to me vain repetitions. Right? And we talked about how that's not meaning that you can't say the Lord's Prayer. And I call it the Lord's Prayer because the Lord said it. Okay? That's why it's called the Lord's Prayer. It's not because there was five examples of him praying it before dinner. It's because the Lord said, this is it. That's why they call it that. What makes it a vain repetition is when you're just vainly repeating it. All right? That's what a vain repetition is. All right? Because here's the thing. The prayer of the sinner, the publican that was in front of the throne of God, right next to the Pharisee saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Guess what? He said it more than once and it was not a vain repetition. All right. He didn't just bow down one day and go, have mercy on me, Lord, and check out. He was weeping and wailing that same prayer over and over again. Well, here you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees will, by pretense, make long and glorious flowery prayers. But those aren't prayers of faith. They're not prayers of desire. They're not prayers of relationship. They're not prayers of any of those things of why you pray. They make long prayers as a pretense. Which means they do it in purposeful kind of ways to glorify themselves as being good big prayer warriors. Okay? At the same time, they're devouring widows' houses. Now, as we've gone through this, haven't we heard the case of the widows come up more than once? 
In fact, when you rewind back to everything we're talking about in Deuteronomy, when you go through the Psalms, when you go through the Proverbs, when you go through Amos, when you go through Micah, when you go through all of them, the widows just keep coming up. It's like these people that just keep coming up on the radar. It's kind of like God has a heart for them or something because he's spread them across 66 books of the Bible. Okay? And the number one requirement of the Jews, especially the religious elites of the Jews, was to take care of the widows. He says, but here you are over here making these long prayers like you're some kind of religious person. On the other side, you're destroying the very people I commanded you to take care of. One sense, you're giving a lot of religious ceremony and pretense. The other sense, you have completely missed the whole point of any of this. Your actions and your teachings, your religious ceremonies do not match up with the heart that I have called you to have for people. Again, you can preach about grace all you want to. But if you're devouring widows' houses over here, you are failing on the grace marker. Okay? You can pray all day if you want to. And then brag about it to me the next day at lunch about how long you prayed about it. But if you're then turning around and cheating on your wife, I don't care how long your prayer was. It's bogus. You can give me all of the religious ceremony that you're doing to try to show how religiously influential you are. I want to see your life changed by it. That's the difference. That's the difference between religious ceremony and faithful practice. And that's the difference here between discipleship and destruction. He's telling us, don't be a Pharisee. Don't have all this religious pretense. Don't have all this religious ceremony for the sake of having religious ceremony. That's not what it's about. Ultimately, it is about caring about the things that God cares about. Ultimately, it is doing these things out of an affection for your Savior. That's where this flows from. So as the church and as individual parts of the church, we are called and commanded to make disciples, not obstruct them. And to live out the things Christ taught and not try to explain them away. Sometimes we explain them away verbally. Okay, well, I know that's what he said, but really, you know, this is what he's talking about. And I know that may be what that, but, but in all honesty, this is really what they're getting at. Okay. But then we also explain them away by our lives. When we then go out the next week and we don't do what we have been reading and studying and teaching about. And then when we get confronted with it, we go, well, but you know, this is the situation today. And this is what all I'm saying is you're making disciples. It's just whether you're making them disciples of Christ and his example or their discipleship training is your life and your example. So that's what we have to be cautious of as we go forward in this week. And what my, so my kind of view of the solution for that, okay? You could go out, especially as a type A, and you could start checkboxing the ways that you're going to match up the two. Say, okay, so we learned about making disciples, so I'm going to go make disciples. And then 
We learned about how to make disciples and that we should love our neighbors. So I'm going to go love my neighbors so they can see me making disciples by loving my neighbors. And you can do that. Or this is the way that I think you see it bore out in the Bible. It wasn't people who came up with the right list that became the apostles. It wasn't that the apostle Paul had his palm pilot and that enabled him to be more structured and his discipleship, okay? What it was, as he would describe, is that my life in Christ and my affection for Christ and my relationship with Christ made everything else worthless and then all of my actions from that purposeful. So because of my relationship with Christ, because of my love for him, for what he has done for me, and because of what he has done in me and made me the person I am and given me the gifts that I have and reoriented my mind and my heart, every action out of that that I am doing, I do purposefully for him. Okay? It's not a checklist. It's not that you found the right pros and cons list. It's that you get back to a love of Christ that then affects all of your actions. That's how it's seen in the Bible. That's how the apostles lived. Okay? So our correction for this, how we would correct our lives, you don't start off and go, okay, well, these are all my check boxes of where I'm not doing what I'm thinking that I'm supposed to be doing, so let me find the steps that I need to take. The one step you need to take is getting back in relationship with Christ. The, the, the step that we do to reorient our lives is not come back up with a different compass. It's go back to Christ. It's discuss things with Him. It's have a conversation. It's getting back in what He taught. And going, okay, Christ, I see what you're communicating here with me. Now let me get closer to you. And then the actions of our lives are affected by that. Then, because we have a love for Christ, our love is then going to spill out like Christ's love did. And it's going to affect how we interact with people. It's going to affect how we disciple people. Instead of coming up with them with a 12-point plan of how they get to be a disciple of Christ, we get to show them in our actions. So that when people at the job or at school or at Walmart or wherever recognize, they go, man, there's just something different about your life and how you live it. The way that you deal with things, the way you interact with things is different. Because Christ has made me different. And because my relationship is with Christ has made my life different. So may God bless us to kind of reorient in that way. So that our discipleship as he has commanded us to do would reflect not our failings and our faults and where we've gone wrong but always teach about Christ, but also that we as disciples of Christ, our lives would then reflect the teachings that Christ commanded us to live by. So may God bless us to do that.